Well, hello, and welcome back to Bite Sized Virtue. This is season two, episode two. And we're continuing on our way through Lent in 2016, moving slowly but surely towards Easter. And of course, we'll be continuing past Easter as well. This week, we will be continuing the discussion that was begun last week. I'm still talking with my friend Paul about a variety of issues. We'll kind of move on to some different topics for this episode. Still kind of sticking to the uh, discussion of technology as a means of community, but... Well, you know what? Just follow along. You know, I enjoy that. I'm not sure if you've seen Deadpool yet. No, I haven't had a chance. It's it's a... It's a... I described it as a palate cleanser for superhero movies because <laughs> it's it's dark because of just like the subject matter, but it's not it doesn't take itself darkly. If that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, so, I kind of get. I've seen the trailers and the red band trailers, so I kind of yeah. get that. You know, it's very fourth wall breaking. Deadpool is very self aware that he is a movie character and yeah. just relentlessly mocks all the conventions of superhero movies. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do get that. But no, I haven't had a chance to see the movie. Um, eh, that one's on my uh, watch on Netflix list, I think. But, you know, I do get that. I, 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 like, I, I saw it on Sunday, and I would recommend people to see it. But, I mean, again, like, um, it's... <sighs> Um, it's, if you took Daredevil and then you just kind of turn the lights on and turn up the humor, then that's kind of what it's like. So it's, it's a very unique, um, mobile movie and obviously it's done, what, $200 million in the first weekend or something like that? Something absurd like that. Yeah. yeah so just record shattering. So, I mean, it's done well. So... But I mean, like I still, I, 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 I love the, I love that this stuff has become mainstream, and that's what my, um, I don't know where I was going with that now. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Um, yeah, but actually, it's funny in. Um, the original point where you talked about technology being neutral or um, and I'm thinking of a couple of thinkers who very strongly disagreed with like you know it's it's how you use the technology rather than um, like what that particular technology is and there's a couple of thinkers that were very much in disagreement with that position I tend towards agreeing with them as well um you know, probably the earliest one that I'm thinking of is uh, Nietzsche and Heidegger. But I don't really want to go into too deep in them because I'm not that interested in them as thinkers, per se. Okay. But um, there are two Canadians um, that had a lot to say about the role of technology in society. And the first one being Marshall McCullen. Of course. Um, medium is a message guy. Um, thank you, Canadian Moments. 
And uh, the second one who's near and dear to my heart is George Grant. And I don't necessarily I don't necessarily share like George Grant's pessimism uh, regarding technology, um, but there are um, definitive ways that the way that uh, technology is structured that will um, what's the word I'm looking for that will it will um, shape how it's used. So you, you see, like, and you see um, this uh, in um, the algorithms used by Facebook and by Google about shaping about how, um, what information is provided to us. And you see the Google who originally went to China, I believe, and they, they got out because of the Chinese firewall or whatever. Right, um, the censorship too, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it's not even... Um, I forget. I think there's some fairly recent controversy with Google about how um, certain subjects they're deliberately censoring. Well, oh, I remember now. Their um, files uh, sharing sites. I know you're not. You're 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 very strongly against them. Um, file sharing sites are no longer going to be shown up in Google and Google searches and stuff like that. And I think that's the same as, like, um, Pirate Baseball. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, um, we could have a big debate about IP and stuff like that, and I don't really want to get into a debate about that. But um, those types of technologies that almost have a monopoly on popular perceptions or use or whatever, because uh, we, don't, we don't say, hey, just ask Jeeves it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like, you Google it. It's like yeah, you don't Yahoo search means. anymore. Yeah. So I mean, um, it's a mainstreaming of certain things that create. Uh, and um, this is like George Grant declared it like uh, a totalitarian society and culture, which does you know have a huge effect on our daily lives. So I'm not necessarily sure if if uh, um, that's what you're talking about per se, or if that's you know if that was on your radar at all. Or... Well, you know, it's actually interesting that you get into that because uh, now I'm thinking of, and it was just published today. So we're recording this on the 17th of February, just for those listening. And it was just published today. Was did you read Apple's letter? I, I didn't read the letter. I know about what's what the the. I know what's happening. Yeah, because I mean, on the surface, like it's easy to sympathize with the FBI because, of course, they want to get more details about the the terrorist massacre that took place in San Bernardino a little while back, and part of their investigation, of course, concerns the iPhone owned by one of the perpetrators. I can't remember if it was the husband or the wife or whoever, but the point is they have this iPhone. And of course the iPhone has pretty robust security. Um, thankfully I'm generally a supporter of security being a cybersecurity analyst or having been one for a number of years. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the FBI is basically, they asked Apple to create 
and to install on this phone a custom version of the iOS operating system that has certain back doors built in that would basically allow them to break the passcode down. Because, I mean, the thing about an iPhone is um, if you want to actually, you know, log into an iPhone, you have to enter a passcode. Well, it can take a while to guess a passcode, especially if it's more than four characters, right? Mm-hmm. Um And, you know, Apple actually in their last OS revision or in a recent OS revision at any rate, um, gave you the option. It's still a four character password passcode by default code because it's just numbers. Really, there's no words involved, but optionally within the settings menu, you can actually enable a six character passcode, um, which is still not as robust as, you know, uh, arbitrary length password, but is certainly a lot more robust than a four-character passcode. A lot harder to guess, generally speaking. One 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 one. Though, I mean, if that's your passcode, change it. Okay, there we go. <laughs> but anyways, so what the FBI wants is they basically want this custom version of the iOS software that, among other things, allows for the electronic entry of passcodes rather than passcode entry being restricted to the tactile and. The significance there is huge because, I mean, an agent sitting at his desk can try a few passcodes a minute, right? Yeah. A computer can try thousands or hundreds of thousands of passcodes a minute, right? Cracking the phone becomes a probably trivial exercise unless the uh, the San Bernardino shooters happened to be using full passwords on their phones. And even then, um, cracking a password... (coughs) There are ways to do that in some cases, right? So what the FBI is basically asking for is a significant weakening of the iOS security model, which is a demand that Apple is not particularly willing to acquiesce to. And I think it's telling that the FBI here, in this case, is leaning on a law that dates back to, like, Pretty much almost for as long as, actually, I think longer than Canada has been a country, okay? This is like, uh, I can't remember the name of it. It's like the the Ritz Act or something, I don't know. But it was passed in the late 1700s, okay? So, right off the bat, there's a few problems that come to mind. I mean, one, you should never undermine security because a back door... You can never control who uses the back door, you know, once it's there, once it's in the wild, the bad guys can use it just as much as the good guys can. That's Mm -hmm. just the nature of these things. But also it's the fact that we're using, you know, that the FBI is attempting to use a law that is, gosh, I mean, over 200 years old, actually maybe even over 19, 18, yeah, over 200 years old as the basis for its claim against Apple. And I mean, we have, deba- we have debates in Canada about this. I know debates happen in the U S about this, about, you know, uh, even stuff like the language of the constitution and, you know, what the intent of the drafters was with respect to, you know, a particularly modern case. Um, how much more so does that apply in the case of, you know, one particular law, one particular, particular act that 
pre that dates back to 1789 or whatever the case may yeah. be when i mean the idea of a phone in general the idea of encryption in general was non-existent or very new mm. uh so anyways uh that's uh I don't know where I was going with that either. Crap. Um, but there was one thing you'd said and with respect to Google and with respect to, um, file sharing sites and Google essentially shadow banning them from search results. I mean, you're right that I do generally personally take a fairly dim view of the use of file sharing sites to spread material, um, that we would commonly refer to as having been pirated. Okay. And I mean, we can debate abandonware, whether that's a real thing or not, we can debate the whole concept of piracy, but that is the extent of my objection. You know, I am very much, uh, you should buy it to play it or watch it kind of person. Um, and so, you know, in as much as file sharing sites are used to allow people to, circumvent that yeah i do have an objection to them but on the other hand if people use file sharing sites to you know like i mean i'm not opposed to the use of them people have used them to send me files to host on the ultima codex you know downloadable files for ultima fan projects um and i mean you know in running the codex i tend to be pretty scrupulous about uh what is and isn't uh, acceptable under the applicable statutes, especially in the United States. Uh, but you know, I mean, some guy makes a patch for Ultima nine that fixes some of the bugs in the game. Well, you still need to own a copy of Ultima nine to use the patch, but Ultima nine has some bugs and Hey, it's nice that it's fixed now. And EA actually tends to be pretty tolerant of projects like that. So if he wants to use Mega to send me uh, the installer for me to host on my site, I, you know, my objection is nothing. I don't have one in that case, right? Um, if he wants to use Mega to send me a copy of Ultima 9 to install and play, that's where my objection starts. So. Okay. But I think a lot of the reason that Google is doing what they're doing is the fact that copyright law in the US and especially in the era of the DMCA is really messed up. It's not particularly practical. It's not particularly informed by common sense. Um, There are a lot of issues with it. And I think Google are basically just making the decision to inoculate themselves against a very obvious uh, vulnerability yeah, to a DMC okay. claim, DMCA claim, right? Yeah. So I don't I... necessarily agree with it because I do think that it flirts with the concept of uh, what could possibly be called corporate censorship. But on the other hand, I do actually, I think I understand the regulatory environment that is motivating the decision. And I think ultimately, if it's a bad decision, 
the badness of the decision begins not with Google themselves, but with the laws that are kind of forcing their hand in this matter. Yeah. Okay, that's fair enough. I'm 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 thinking of, of similar criticisms coming from Facebook where um they would censor certain like pro pro Israeli pages and stuff like that while um similar pages of uh, Palestinians which would literally like almost literally say like kill the Jews and stuff like that would not be banned. Yeah, I remember that experiment. That was a uh that was an Israeli professor I think that did that. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I, and, and that, and it seems like that that Facebook has a is starting to develop a really kind of bad reputation for doing things like that. Twitter as well. Um, you know, there's okay. been some debate on Twitter lately about essentially again this sort of shadow ban thing they have going. So you know, um, users who, I mean, they usually use the shadow bans to basically, and you know what. I actually get why a shadow ban exists because so do I, <laughs> you know, well, I get it. I get it from a more technical level because if you just outright lock someone's account, who is a troll, you know, if you lock a troll's account, he's going to roll a new account. Yeah. Okay. If you shadow ban him so that nobody can see his tweets or hardly anybody can see his tweets or posts or whatever, he, you know, whatever the platform's term for it is, unless they really go looking for them, well, then he's not going to know, you know, and he's going to keep spewing his bile, but nobody's going to be reading it. Yeah. So I can kind of understand at a technical level, the appeal of the shadow ban. The problem, of course, now is that the shadow ban is being applied against, say, people who are critical of Anita Sarkeesian. Or, um, you know, various uh, alt-right media personalities, things like that. And we're again with this, you know, problem of corporate censorship. And in the case of Twitter and Facebook, it is actually more odious because there's not really a regulatory regime bearing down on them saying, you know, hey, uh, certain types of content expect a lawsuit. It's just, you know, it's basically at that point, it's the personal political biases of the owners of the company, maybe, or the engineers of the company, or just the help and support team of the company that are really coming into play and maybe are being abused to silence voices illegitimately. <sighs> so, you know, like that, uh, I definitely agree is more of a problem. Um, but now, but again, is that, is that the fault of the platform or is that a people problem, right? You know, is that again, <clears throat> is that yeah. a moral issue with the technology that is Facebook, with the technology that is Twitter, or is that a moral issue with the people who rightly or wrongly are in the position of being essentially content gatekeepers on those platforms. All right. I'm going to cut it off there for another week and we will be back probably next week with 
Um, still yet more reflections, unless I can actually get some time on Clorto or some time from Clortos Dragon, and we'll start recording, you know, actual reflections on. I think we've kind of settled on the principle of love and how it's depicted in the Ultima games and how that relates to real world concepts of love uh, as being, you know, the topic that we're going to focus on when we actually sit down for a discussion. But for right now, one thought uh, that I had too, just in um, going over the audio for this episode again, another movie recommendation. I mean, obviously Paul talked about Deadpool, which I gather is, you know, uh, I mean, very R-rated movie for sure. Um, but, you know, if you're looking for some lighter fare that's still a very interesting take on uh, a well-trodden path, um, my wife and I last weekend went and saw the movie Risen starring Joseph Fiennes. And no, for those of you listening who aren't actually sure what it's about, it's not an adaptation of the spiritual sequel to the gothic series of CRPGs. That's not what it's about. It is a biblical tale, or it's kind of framed in the sense of being a biblical tale, but it doesn't take the typical approach of a biblical tale because the main character, played by Joseph Fiennes, is actually a Roman tribune, and he's basically tasked with investigating this series of mysterious events that seems to start transpiring after a particular Nazarean itinerant preacher gets crucified. It's a really neat take on the passion narrative and the resurrection narrative in the Gospels because it puts you very much in the shoes of, you know, the Romans and the people who don't understand what's going on, who don't even necessarily believe in any of the stuff that this man said or that was foretold about him. And it just sort of, it takes you through a lot of the same events, but from this outsider's perspective. And it really, really works narratively, dramatically. It's a really, really neat movie, really, really good story, uh, really quite enjoyable as a, uh, as a movie. So definitely want to recommend that. Go and see it. It was a good show. So that is it for Bite Size Virtue for this week. Um, and I apologize too, there probably won't be, I won't have time to do a regular spam, spam, spam humbug episode this week. Things just got away from me. So we will be back with the regular spam, spam, spam humbug stuff next week. I'll be talking about something really cool that happened with my Beaver Scouts. And there was also some, uh, Bioware was also involved in this a little bit. So stay tuned for that. And until next time, be virtuous. <laughs>